Hello and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. Today, I continue my countdown to the Weston A. Price Foundation's annual Wise Traditions Conference in November. With three weeks to go until the conference, my guest is Hannah Crum of Kombucha Camp. Plus, our desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to our appetizers and find out what happened this past week in the world of real food. An elementary school student in Newport Beach, California, was suspended for having kombucha in his lunchbox because that violated the school district's drug and alcohol policy. The school even called in a policeman to tell the boy that kombucha is illegal and dangerous. This goes to show how little is known by the general public about kombucha and its supposed alcoholic content. The kombucha carried by the student was under 0.5% alcohol and under federal law that's legal for someone of any age. More discussion on this with our guest, Hannah Crum, in a bit. Next, the FDA has found that seafood exported from Asia to the U.S. is a heavily contaminated. The Chinese have been feeding fish with manure that's contaminated with microbes like salmonella. Also in Vietnam, workers are sorting shrimp on dirty floors and packing the shrimp in dirty plastic tubs covered with ice made from tap water filled with bacteria. These findings are more reasons why it's important to only eat wild-caught seafood as well as know about the practices your supplier engages in. Also, up to 3 million boxes of Kellogg's cereal have been recalled because they might contain metal fragments. The material is a metal mesh from a faulty machine part. This news comes as Kellogg's has been a major donor for the campaign against Prop 37, which requires mandatory GMO labeling. Allowing metal to fall into cereal during production gives an example of what else is tolerated by companies selling genetically modified foods. Next, for those of you living in the city that have always thought you couldn't farm, you'll soon be able to with a concept called vertical farming. There are several ways this can be done. In Sweden, there's a 12-story triangular building where plants travel on tracks from the top floor to the bottom. Vertical farming has many environmental benefits. We won't have to waste gas with delivery trucks driving into the city. Also, by farming indoors, there won't be any need for spraying with harsh chemicals. And finally, the new trend that's hitting the craft beer world is canning. Breweries in states such as California and Colorado are selling beer in cans because it's the best way to protect the beer from sunlight. Even beer in brown bottles that's exposed to the sun can have important elements of the hops destroyed, having the beer lose its fresh taste. Glass bottle tops can also lose oxygen over time, also contributing to a flat-tasting beer. And now for our main course, which is the benefits of kombucha. If you don't know by now what benefits it has, then either you're a first-time listener or my past several shows on the topic didn't do anything for you. To refresh you briefly, kombucha is a probiotic drink filled with healthy bacteria, and it's great for cutting down your sugar cravings. While kombucha is a healthy and wonderful drink, certainly it's met some heavy criticism in the media due to misunderstandings about its alcoholic content. In addition to the recent news about the school suspending a student for carrying it in his lunch, a couple of years ago, it had been pulled from the shelves of Whole Foods and other supermarkets. It later returned to the shelves after its alcoholic content was lowered, which some argued changed the health benefits of it. But getting kombucha from the store isn't the only way to obtain the product. 
Kombucha can also be made at home with a simple SCOBY culture, tea bags, sugar, water, and any ingredients you'd like to add for some flavor. Here to talk with me about the benefits of kombucha and how to make your own is Hannah Crum, owner and founder of Kombucha Camp. Hannah, welcome back to the show again. Always a pleasure having you here. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having us back. It's uh, it's always fun to be here with you and uh, talk about our real food journeys. Absolutely. And it's just it's wonderful because you've been doing, I know, a lot of speaking about kombucha at different festivals um, all over California. I mean, I think you've kind of become to kombucha like what Mark McAfee has become to raw milk. Well, I take that as a compliment as I think uh, Mark McAfee is is a huge activist for raw milk, and um, I'm glad to be perceived in the same way as an activist for kombucha. It's, uh, it's, it's really funny how it's misunderstood. You know, if you ask people about other fermented foods, like would you ever say that you're scared of sauerkraut or afraid of yogurt? Probably not. That, that kind of conception wouldn't come to mind. But you ask people about kombucha, and I don't know if it's just the way that the culture looks, which you have one yourself, Aaron, so you can attest. It, it is definitely um, kind of a blob-looking thing, but uh, people just, just really are – they have some kind of misconception about it, which, you know, that's our mission at Kombucha Camp is simply to provide the highest quality information and research about kombucha out there to, to really dispel this misinformation so people can feel confident when they're brewing it at home, that they're able to do it right, and that they can make safe and healthy kombucha. I think part of what it is is people have trouble with change, with something new, and kombucha is new. Or, well, I mean, it's really, it's not new. Really, it's an old drink that's been brought back, and that's similar with raw milk, also something that we had been doing before dairy farms had been moved into the city. And people aren't often familiar with something that we haven't had in, you know, in our recent memories. And I think they kind of panic. They're like, well, why haven't we been consuming this? Um, and then, then, you know, then you get the, the media reporting on it. And I think that, you know, really uh, influences people's perspectives. And so I see that both Kombucha and raw milk both have these similarities. Absolutely. It's an apt comparison, no doubt about it. And I forget because I drink raw milk every day. So for me, raw milk isn't scary at all. And of course, neither is kombucha. But you're absolutely correct. If you talk to most people who don't know um, why raw milk is healthier for you, they, they're afraid of it, right? They think they're going to get some bacteria infection. They think they're going to get sick. And in fact, all all the studies have shown that raw milk is in fact safer to consume than, than pasteurized milk. Um, you know, but people don't know that because of the way it's been um, perceived through the media and the way in which uh, the dairy board has put forward its agenda. And I, I think the same thing is true about kombucha. You know, it was uh, on Dr. Oz not too long ago, a few months ago, and he was talking about the benefits of kombucha, which was fantastic. How exciting to have some real information in the mainstream. Unfortunately, he had this caveat with it, though, to caution people against making it at home because making it at home could be dangerous if it wasn't pasteurized. And it's that same kind of misconception that, um, you know, as the raw milk, you know, it has to be pasteurized in order to be safe. We think that that's the way in which we make something safe. In fact, pasteurization really is a way of making up for poor sanitation, right? So, so. 
they have to pasteurize most cafe milk because of all the crud that gets in there from, you know, the antibiotics and the pus and the blood. I mean, we've all heard the horror stories, right? So they have to pasteurize it in order to prevent the, the harmful bacteria from, from harming you. But then you're consuming the dead bodies of, of these harmful bacteria in your, in your pasteurized milk. And with kombucha, um, you know, it's, there are some benefits um, to drinking pasteurized kombucha, I would say the benefit is you're not drinking a soda. Um, you're not putting something else that uh, is not good for you in your mouth. However, through that pasteurization process, you are also losing a good portion of why we love to drink kombucha, which is that healthy bacteria and yeast that helps support our immune system. So um, in terms of the the alcohol content part, that's one of the ways in which people have tried to control that in kombucha. And kombucha, like all naturally fermented foods, creates a small amount of alcohol as a natural byproduct of the fermentation process. However, it's such a small amount that it's really non-inebriating. And it serves a specific function. It's not like it's it's making alcohol in order to, to have some... Um, intoxifying effect on on the person who's drinking it but rather it serves as a preservative so it's one of the ways in which the culture protects itself from invasion by harmful microorganisms and in fact it's self-limiting um, if you recall in our kombucha making process right we make our sweet tea solution and we add our scoby to it and what happens first is the yeast get to work right away consuming the sugar and converting that into co2 our carbonation and the ethanol then the bacteria comes in, and this is the symbiotic part of the process, is the bacteria feeds on the waste products of the yeast, meaning specifically the ethanol. So the bacteria consume the ethanol and convert that into healthy acids. And it's those healthy acids that help our body to detoxify and to come back into balance so that we function as a more um, complete whole immune system organism. Absolutely. And in relation to this school controversy recently, I mean, about saying it has alcohol content, I mean, it's under 0.5% as you've explained on your blog with the specific brand that it was. And the other thing is a lot of drinks that students have in their lunches can have, you know, that very small thing like, you know, apple cider, apple juice. I mean, or even orange juice or a banana. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it Foods commonly have trace amounts of alcohol. It's just a natural part of, of being alive. Since bacteria cover literally every single surface of everything, including your fruit, including your food, what they do, the yeast as well, the, the, is they ferment those things. So literally the elements um, that are, are there to help us decompose. So whether we're a piece of fruit or whether we're a human being, we already contain the elements that are going to help us decompose when we pass from this earth. And so the yeast are doing that, are, are creating that effect on the fruit and fermenting it into alcohol. So it's been observed animals in the wild will, will seek out fermented fruit and they will consume it until they feel a little, you know, they notice that they start to walk funny and, you know, they have similar types of effects as being intoxicated. And so humans are not the only ones who enjoy getting that small, um, that small buzz from it. But in terms of the ones that are on the shelf and specifically in terms of the brand that this child brought to school, these kombuchas have been formulated specifically to fall within the legally prescribed limit of 0.5% and less. And in fact, 
the bottle that he brought to school, uh, Bucha Guava Mango, was actually 0.22% ABV. So it's well below that 0.5%. Now, the school officials looked at the label, saw the word alcohol, and freaked out without even realizing that the product was perfectly legal and safe for the child to consume. Which is scary that they didn't really research. And just kind of scary how little is known about kombucha that they just think, well, it's alcohol. Because, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people don't really know what it is. And, yeah, I understand that they want to make sure that it's okay, but... It was it was very poorly handled. Well, it's also a huge misconception about alcohol in general. You know, um, alcohol. We have a very prohibition mentality about it. We have a very all or nothing. Our our society, our culture is very black and white. Right? We're we're extreme in a lot of ways. Even though, <laughs> as we live our lives and as we live in this world, we see everything is a shade of gray. But there's very much this idea of like it, no alcohol, zero tolerance. And, you know, it doesn't really fit with the way in which we've evolved as a species. You know, alcohol and fermentation is prehistoric. And in fact, every culture has fermented foods as part of their dietary. Um, Sander Katz, who just came out with his Art of Fermentation book, I had the pleasure of seeing him at the Heirloom Festival in um, Petal, in Santa Rosa. And he was talking about um, he was talking about he studied, you know, fermentation for all these years, 15 years or something. And he's, he's read all the research. He's looked at foods and beverages from cultures all around the world. And he has literally not found a single culture that ha- doesn't have some form of fermented food in its diet. And what's really scary is how we've completely lost that tradition here in the United States because of the processed foods industry. You know, they moved away from fermentation and moved to preservation through with vinegar as the process. I mean, we see our pickles are preserved in vinegar, sauerkraut preserved in vinegar. And what they lose is that bacterial heritage, right? That that immune building bacteria that really is, you know, they were our condiments, salsas, chutneys, ketchup was fermented fish sauce, you know, all those things that we add to our foods to spice them up, to give them a little zip. Well, they're literally alive. That's part of um, not only are they tasty and flavorful, but they're also they're living. And so we're consuming something with our food that is also empowering us, um, which we've lost. So it, I think it's exciting and important that people have been reclaiming these, these lost arts and really have been um, – turning to fermented foods to help boost their immunity, to help um, improve their health. It's certainly very important to return to the old traditions and return to traditions of other cultures that are healthier than us in the U.S. I mean, that was all about what Weston Price travels and studies were about, was about learning what different cultures did. And that was certainly one of the things they found all cultures have in common, as well as also finding out that all cultures ate some form of animal products. That was another important thing. Well, and uh, speaking of animal products and all that, lately I've been doing bone broth for breakfast. That's my latest um, evolution in my real foods journey. And I cannot tell you, it is so delicious. It's so tasty. And it's really filling. Like I don't, I don't necessarily feel hungry later in the day after I've had my bone broth for breakfast. How about you? What other... Um, real food elements have you been including lately in your diet? Certainly broth is a big thing, or well, actually stock, um, using chicken stock. I mean, I start making my own soups instead of buying stuff at stores, and really chicken stock is one of the best things we have because it uses other parts of the chicken 
to not go to waste. And it's just having soups made from the chicken stock instead of made from, you know, these rancid oils. Mm-hmm. That's an important thing. I mean, it's uh, there's what's the line? Broth is beautiful. Mm, it is. It's yeah. oh my god, and it's bone building. It's so nourishing. It's it's really interesting. Lately, I just it's like like liver has this kind of metallic taste. I've been doing the uh, fermented cod liver oil, and Me I just too. feel like in order to get strong, in order to be strong people, we have to eat nails. And I guess what I mean by that is like getting our iron, getting our minerals. Like it's so much of what we're lacking because the the soils have been depleted of all of their mineral elements. Because due to monocropping, due to um, using pesticides and fertilizers, that I mean, the soils are stripped. So the minerals that we were normally getting on the on our vegetables and and on the things we consume from the ground, they're lacking. And so where do we get them at? And it's I think through consuming these bone broths, these fermented cod liver oils, or getting liver in any form, um, is, is hugely important. Another way in which I've been getting my minerals is by using magnesium spray. Uh, have you heard of using this a little i think you might have talked about maybe on one of the other shows on the station yeah no i love it It, you know what i've noticed from it um so i originally started using it because i had heard it when you're magnesium deficient you might have more of a a body odor and you know trying to be more natural not using the the commercial uh, deodorants as much and trying to um and certainly not using any antiperspirant so using the spray i was hoping to help that and it has but the other benefit that I've noticed from using it is my nails are so much stronger. And someone made a comment the other day to me um, at the co-op. I was at the co-opportunity. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's helping you uptake your calcium. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's exactly what it is. So I do my little spray in the morning. You, you spray it on. It goes on transdermally. So it soaks in through your skin. Um, so spray it on and then have my glass of milk. And my nails are so strong. And I just, you just, I'm just feeling stronger. I love it. For a cod liver oil, do you take the capsules or do you actually take the liquid form? Oh, I take the capsules right now. So do I. (laughs) I do have it in liquid form. um, And I think that once I'm through this round of capsules that I'll be ready to to go back to that. But, um, you know, I think I'm finding that through consuming that and getting that into my uh, body, you know, you kind of get the flavor. And um, as my body recognizes that as nutrition, I think it's easier to accept those flavors, which I certainly did not grow up with um, and which a lot of people find off-putting. But, you know, there's a reason why back in the in older times and, and even the 50s that, you know, there was very much this like, take your cod liver oil. It's really good for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, and then I know, like, even some people have taken it for a while, um, say it's still hard to get the taste in the liquid. I remember Kelly, the kitchen cop, was talking about that, about how she still kind of uh, just kind of tries to have it, like, not touch her tongue and just swallow it when she takes it. Yeah, well, I mean, everybody finds a trick, but uh, as Dave Wetzel, the uh, owner and founder of Green Pastures, that, you know, his kids, you just, I don't care how you do it, you just have to find a way to take it. And as long as you have that kind of, I'm just going to take this no matter what attitude, I think um, that's where you get the real benefit. Because here's the thing, you know, Aaron, we've kind of become really soft in our culture. I don't know, like there's this kind of sense of, you know, everything should be easy. Everything should have a Hollywood ending and happily ever after and instant gratification. Here, take this pill. Here, buy this thing. That'll solve your problem. And um, I think there's been forgotten this this concept of like life is hard 
life is difficult. And yes, there are certainly those moments and those should be like the crowning moments. And this is, this is kind of how I think of sugar too. Like, like it used to be, we were in balance with our sugar consumption. Mom didn't let you have sweets or it would spoil your appetite. She didn't let you have all your Halloween candy in one sitting. Cause because sugar's toxic in large quantities. And, and as a child, we experienced that when we ate too much candy and we got a tummy ache. Um, but these days, there's sugar in everything, and we've kind of forgotten that it's, it's supposed to just be there occasionally and not consumed every day. But I think that that's life, too. Life is, is hard, it's difficult, and it's peppered with these sweet moments. And that's, that's good, and it's okay that it's hard. It's okay that there's a struggle and that it isn't always easy breezy and you get whatever you want whenever you want it like it's worth fighting for and and working hard for those things and in terms of sugar i mean other than kombucha which requires using a like organic cane sugar do you use anything that you use some types of natural sweeteners like sucanat palm sugar maple syrup honey a honey i love honey i do a lot of raw honey that's my favorite other sweetener i would say um more than sugar is raw honey there's um you know, just all the healthy elements, the the bacteria that's also present in that. Uh, honey had, does have its own colony of bacteria. It. I feel like consuming a lot of different types of fermented foods, a lot of different types of bacteria is really the best way to support your organism. It's not about only drinking kombucha, right? Kombucha is a gateway. It's a way into discovering other fermented foods. And I think part of why it's a gateway is it's fun, it's easy to make, and you can flavor it like any way possible, you know, um, you can get super creative with those flavorings and that kind of leads you to fermenting other foods. And it's that diversity because the earth is diverse. We are diverse. And the more diversity we put in our body in terms of living foods in a living form, right? Not just popping your pill supplements, but getting them actually in the, in the form your body has evolved to recognize it is so vitally important and um, that diversity is what supports your organism it's not about just consuming one you know only kefir or only yogurt but but mixing all those things together is is what creates the the most support for your body i would agree with you about honey that's probably my favorite too i prefer it over maple syrup i mean maple syrup it's good it's natural although i believe there's some pasteurization in it so to me honey seems like the most natural of the natural sweeteners. I think so. And it's easy to absorb. And, you know, let's just talk about sugar really quickly in kombucha. So I've said that sugar is toxic in large quantities. So it seems like, well, how is it then you're making kombucha with sugar and yet it's still healthy? Um, this is the quote unquote magic of science, right? Uh, as the yeast consume the sugar, they convert it and it and it turns out of sugar into these healthy acids through the fermentation process. So um, I like to think of it as alchemy or as some kind of um, transformational process where it's literally taking something that's toxic to us in large quantities and turning it into something that's healthy and good for us. So um, so if you're concerned about sugar and, and want to make kombucha, just know that if you taste your sweet tea solution and you taste your final kombucha, you will. there's a huge difference in terms of how much sugar is present in that. How's your kombucha brewing going? Uh, well, since moving, actually, I haven't uh, lost the culture with, uh, with the moving process. So I haven't been doing as much of the brewing now, but I mean, 
certainly just been still uh, drinking it as I see it's important. And that's like normal. You know, there's there's an ebb and flow with kombucha, right? You know, people, mm-hmm. they, they brew it at home. They go through that process for a while. And then sometimes they lose interest and they, they go off and do something else. But then they might come back to it. And, you know, that's that's the great thing about cultured foods is because um, – you know, they're becoming more and more popular in the consciousness. It's easier to source those kinds of, um, you know, kefir grains and whatever you need to get started. And it's nice that you can come back to it. And and it's fantastic that there's even a bottled product on the shelf that you can just go in and buy, even if it's, if, if it's one of the reformulated products, because it's still going to be healthier for you than any energy drink or any, you know, fake artificial, artificially sweetened, you know, soda or juice out there. So it's fantastic that we have those choices. So you would say that homebrewed kombucha is superior to the stuff that you find on shelves? Well, when you have – so here's here's why I think it's more beneficial. First of all, you're making it. So there's a personal energy that's going into it. You're, you're taking ownership of your health. And that – that personal nature of it allows you to personalize the flavor. So you decide when in the process your kombucha is done. Um, you know, we're very much wanting well, what's the rules, what's the right way. With kombucha, it's really much, it's about a relationship that you have with it so that you're finding where's the flavor that tastes good to me? Where's the, you know, how do I make this delicious for myself? And so it's really personal in that way. Um, and the other benefit is there's no, so from the time it's packed in the bottle to the time it's sitting on the shelf in the store to the time it gets into your hands, you know, you don't know where it's come from or, or how long it's been anywhere. When you're making it fresh at home, you know exactly from this from this glass right into – from this brewing vessel right into my body, there is a very short distance to travel. Moreover, you have control over what type of ingredients are used. You know, some some brands don't even label that they, they make their kombucha with sugar and all kombucha is made with sugar. That's how we create the culture. That's how we ferment the process. But some labels don't even list that. They just say kombucha, right? So you may or may not even know what you're getting in your bottle. Wow. And some of them force carbonate. So uh, again, and and but on a certain level, you understand, right? They're a commercial product. People are expecting a certain experience every time they open that bottle, and they don't want it to be different from time to time, right? You know, McDonald's really, Ray Kroc really nailed that. I mean, that that was the whole thing behind McDonald's was the same hamburger, the same cheese, you know, the same everything all the time, um, and providing a consistent experience. And so. On a certain level, that's what the, the commercial manufacturers have to do in order to um, be in that arena. Now, at home, we don't have we don't have to be tied by that type of uh, thought process. We can make it unique. We can make it individual. And it's going to, you know, we're going to create those batches that are like, oh, my gosh, what did I do? And we may or may not be able to recreate that. But, um, but it's all part of the process. I would go with also about making it at home. It's really about making anything yourself or growing anything yourself in your garden is, that's the only way you're really going to know that this is organic, that this is all natural. So it goes along with the same thing of when you have your own garden, it's the only way you can know if something is organic and... Has pesticides on it or not, mm -hmm. exactly. You know, and how exactly was it handled? And there's something about eating foods made with love. Like, it sounds cheesy, it sounds hippy dippy whatever but there i mean if we understand our universe in a physical way there's energy and so the energy and the intention that we put forth in doing anything 
um, whether it's, you know, interacting with another person or creating food for our family, that energy gets imbued into the food. And that's, um, you know, and I think that's why you know, mom's homemade cooking always tastes the best because it's made with love by someone you love. And, and that's, that's part of, that's part of that flavor that, that can't be replicated in another place. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly, there. I think what's been really exciting too is just the the um, increase in restaurants and places that really are caring about real foods and and procuring foods that are raised in a humane manner, raised um, in according to nature and their nature, grass fed beef, things like this, uh, without antibiotics, without the hormones, and um, I think since shifting away from CAFO meats and, and getting that whole antibiotic supply out of my body, I've, I've definitely noticed a difference in how I feel. And speaking of more restaurants serving real food, <laughs> I've heard that you've had the pleasure of eating at the L.A. Bar and Restaurant Plan Check, which is one of the few, maybe it's the only one I know of that cooks French fries in purely beef tallow. Tell us so, about that. So delicious. Oh, my gosh. Cannot be beat. Um so not only does it taste amazing, but it just feels really clean. And, um, yeah, their food is really fantastic. I highly recommend checking them out. They, the, the beef tallow fries are not to be missed. And here's the interesting thing is uh, we were there. I was there with Anne-Marie of Cheese Slave, and um, we were talking to the manager, and he did not even know why frying them in beef tallow was better. He didn't even understand the health benefits of that. You know, they, he just thought, oh, the chef, it's what the chef does. But, um whether the chef is doing it solely for flavor or not, you get vitamins. Uh, there are vitamins stored in fat, and that gets directly transferred to you when you cook your foods in that fat. So um, it's not only tastier, but it's also more nutritious. Right. There is certainly a thing known in the culinary world about how it tastes better. I mean, that was something that Julia Child talked about when McDonald's moved away from the beef tallow fries. So more of kombucha and other things about real food in a minute, but... Right now, we got to hear a word from our sponsors. Tear Health Sprouted Flour offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Go to www.organicsproutedflour.net and shop today. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. That's www.organicsproutedflour.net or toll-free 877-401-6837. Wise Traditions Conferences bring a world of nutrition information to the health professional and health-conscious consumer, and the conference meals and exhibit hall reflect our dietary principles. Join us this September 15th to 16th, Buffalo, New York, for our second regional conference, or November 9th to 12th in Santa Clara, California, for our 13th annual international conference. Learn and grow in wellness. See more details on westonaprice.org. And we're back. We're talking with Hannah Crum of Kombucha Camp. This is part of our preparation series for the Wise Traditions uh, Western Price Conference, which is about less than a month away. And we've been talking about kombucha, about some of what the media said about and kind of people's 
scare about it and then talking about the advantages of brewing it at home. And I know some people have some concerns about make it themselves, how it can be dangerous if done wrong. Do you have any tips for how people can can make it with, you know, avoiding some of the problems that often happen? Absolutely. Um, you know, here's the thing about kombucha is it's a hearty organism. There's no way something could have been passed down for hundreds, if not thousands of years, if if it was such a weak organism, right? So it has several ways in which it protects itself. We mentioned one, which is the alcohol that it's produced. Another way in which it protects itself is through the pH. The pH of kombucha is, is between 3.0 and 2.5, which is very low. It's an acid on the pH scale. Now, some people are like, oh, well, if I consume an acid food, does that mean I'm throwing my pH balance off? In fact, kombucha, like vinegar and like citrus, like lemon juice, does the exact opposite. So when it hits your body, it actually alkalizes. It's remineralizing you. So um, so that pH is a very protective environment. However, we need to do our part in order to allow the environment to get to the proper acidification. And we do that through providing the right amount of heat. Uh, for instance, the, you know, it's fall, winter's coming up, people are noticing that their brewing cycle's taking longer and longer, and that's just because of the change in the season. So by having the proper amount of heat on it and the ideal temperature for brewing kombucha is 75 to 85 degrees, although I think like around 80 is kind of uh, one of the better ranges. Um, so when we have that proper heat supply on it, then the environment, it can acidify properly and then it becomes protected. Another way is to try the continuous brew method. In the continuous brew method, we're making a larger batch. So the way you were making kombucha, Aaron, was in the batch brew method, where you make a gallon at a time, you remove your cultures, you pour everything out, and then you start over again. And in that scenario, you have about 90% sweet tea and about 10% starter liquid and culture. And that, that's enough for that environment to acidify properly given the right temperatures. And so in can Yes. Oh, yeah, because I was going to kind of add um, another way I know to brew it um, perf- better is uh, put like that jacket over the jar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you put a little uh, cover on it. Well, we have a heating system that you can put around it, and that, that keeps it warm but still allows the yeast to go through its normal respiration process. That's why we don't put our heating um, elements underneath the jar but rather from around the sides because you'll notice you may have noticed like that brown gook on the bottom um, when you're done brewing that's yeast and so a natural part of their respiration process is they live at the top and then when they die they go to the bottom and we want to allow that process to occur naturally so um, that's why we heat from the sides but the other way that you can do it is uh, continuous brewing so in continuous brewing we're basically doubling that size so instead of one gallon it's about two gallons but instead of draining the entire batch when we're done as we do in batch brewing we're going to leave 50 to 75 percent of it in the vessel so the advantage to that is that your cultures are always in a ph protected environment so there's a lot less risk of contamination you don't handle the cultures as much and also there are certain healthy acids produced later in the fermentation cycle that if you did it in a one gallon jar to 30 days that's that kombucha is probably going to be pretty hard to drink. It, um, all the sugar will be gone. So in the continuous brew method, we get all the benefits 
of, of those healthy acids, but we're also tempering the flavor with that sweet tea. Plus, it's in a constantly protected pH environment. So let's say, for instance, you go on vacation for Christmas, you just leave it hanging out in there. When you return, it's going to be perfectly fine because it's in that protected environment. And we've established earlier that it's not something that's dangerous for kids. So, you know, you get your sugar in. Do you think maybe for Halloween this year I should just um, have people sampling kombucha when they come up and trick-or-treat at my house? (laughs) I don't know. You know, people stopped taking apples and homemade treats a long time ago out of of fear. Unfortunately, there's there's just uh, enough bad people out there um, um, tricking the kids. But I think that would be fantastic. Or... Or you could make, um, what did I see? There was a recipe. Kombucha uh, jello? Is yeah, that the, the buccello. Yeah, and I was going to bring that up, actually. Uh-huh. <laughs> or you can make, um, out of Sandra Katz's book, there's a recipe for nada, um, which is basically you take the scoby, so you take the culture itself, and there's a couple different ways you can prepare it, and I've tried a couple different ways of preparing it. Um, the way that they do it in the Philippines is they cut it up into little pieces, and then they boil it on the stove with some sugar. Um, and what this does is it, uh, it, it pulls out, it, it prevents the bacteria from eating the sugar because I've also done it. So you lose some of the bacteria, which is a bummer. So you lose that. But you get the benefit. You're consuming the cellulose, and there's still healthy acids that survive that process. And it's like candy. It's like a little gummy with the, with the sugar. I've also done it where instead of cooking it, you just put the sugar on it. However, <laughs> if you don't eat it within a short period of time, the culture, because it's still alive, will eat all the sugar and it goes back to just being sour. So, um, you know, and kids love like Sour Patch Kids and things like this. This could be, you could make up a big batch of uh, SCOBY candy and hand that out for Halloween. You'd really be giving them a treat. Uh, interesting. Yeah, when you say the culture eats up the sugar, I see it sounds like some like monster, like uh, <laughs> you know, eating up the sugar and turning it uh, sour. Go <laughs> with the Halloween theme. I'm just <laughs> exactly. thinking of that. Um, yeah, you know, um, I think a lot of people do have uh, kind of a fear of any type of homemade thing. And uh, I've moved into a new neighborhood, and, you know, it's um, it's a neighborhood that's still changing. So I, I hate to say it, but I may go with somewhat more of a traditional candy where I'm living. You know, I'm just – I'm not living in Berkeley, so it would be different <laughs> if I were living there. Um, then I think they may actually go for something like kombucha candy. Well, they – you never know. You might be uh, uh, getting some new people, introducing them to something new, and that could be a good thing. Yeah. Well, you know, with the way my neighborhood's turning around, I hope hopefully soon it'll be uh, at some point a neighborhood that will be accepting of of all this stuff, and you know, I could. Well, become- uh- and if anyone wants to try the kombucha candy, they should come see um, – I'll be doing the SCOBY Petting Zoo on Saturday at the conference for the kids. Uh, and so basically I will have cultures out. I'll have a, a little display talking about some of the other uses for the culture as well as an opportunity to touch them and try the kombucha candy. So uh, we got a lot of fun stuff lined up for the conference. This is the Wise Traditions Conference. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, yeah. So actually let's get into a little of that. You're going to be one of the speakers there. What are you going to be talking about? Um, the name of the talk is Kombucha and the Human Microbiome. Um, this is kind of the direction kombucha has led me in, and that's to really understand what it means to be a human being and to live in this natural world. And um, to coin a phrase from John Moody, you know, he thinks of us or has brought up the term bacterio sapiens. And I think that perfectly encapsulates our relationship with bacteria. And um, the Human Microbiome Project was 
was born from um, the Human Genome Project that kind of gave birth to the Human Bio- Microbiome Project. And as you recall, the Human Genome Project was was uh, set about in order to understand our human genome and, and can we find genetic therapies or figure out ways to cure diseases through using genetic therapy. <clears throat> well, as they were going along and studying the human genome, what they realized is they could not fully understand how our genes worked until they understood the role of that bacteria play. Because bacteria not only live on every surface of our skin, but they also live inside of our bodies as well. And in fact, we're kind of a, um, a supraorganism in that we are uh, an amalgam of several different types of organisms, um, bacteria, human cells, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so, so we're this kind of hybrid. And I think we've completely lost sight of <laughs> what we are in, in terms of pasteurization, in terms of having this like, you know, germ warfare or meaning war on germs. Um, you know, I think that we've kind of lost touch with that part of who we are. And it's exciting because now there's this cutting edge science that's starting to show that relationship and how dynamic it is and how important it is. And in fact, how our human cells are informed by bacteria and our, our human cells need the bacteria in order to function properly. And that's a huge revelation. Um, and, it, and therefore, it means that we should be running to and embracing our fermented foods, embracing raw milk because of the healthy bacteria, just embracing um, eating dirt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that theoretically, but but uh, there have been a lot of a lot of uses for soil. You know, the microbes are really beneficial. There's there's certain types of clay that we can use in a healing way, and and part of it is because of the organisms that live in it. Um, and so, really getting back in touch with that relationship and what that means for for ourselves and our immunity and 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 how to rebuild our bacterial force field. So John Moody, he's the one that coined the term bacteria sapien. That's the first place I heard it. Um, I I had the pleasure of seeing him in St. Louis at the regional conference there. And um, yeah, I just, I, that just stuck in my mind. I was like, yes, that's it. That's exactly what we are. Yeah. Yeah. Bacteria sapiens. It stuck in my mind when you said it, you were, I think the first person that, that I heard it from. And actually, I had actually thought that you had coined the term, which I have to bring up when I had Mark McAfee on the show about a month ago and he... (laughs) Because he said that that was his term. Oh, everybody's going to lay claim to it. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a wonderful term because, like I said, it really just kind of shows that relationship. And so whoever said it first doesn't really matter. I think it's more the, the concept of, of really under, what does that mean, bacterio sapien, right? And And how does that then translate into the choices we make in terms of our diet and our food? Oh, absolutely. No, we don't need to, uh, you know, have this whole battle of, of who owns the term. The point is, it's just, it's such a wonderful thing that explains what we are and explains the point of why we need healthy bacteria and fermented foods. So people like that principal in Newport Beach understand why the kid had kombucha in his lunch. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, and here's the, here's the really horrible thing about that incident is to me, it's not really about kombucha. Yeah, certainly kombucha is kind of what fomented um, their reaction, but it's more in the way that they decided to handle the situation because they discovered the bottle on a Tuesday and confiscated it then, but it wasn't until Wednesday that they then pulled the child out of his classes and interrogated him and all of that without contacting the mother. Now, if this had been, 
you know, let's just say, pretend for instance, he'd brought beer to school, right? Let's say he'd actually right. brought some alcohol to school and they had confiscated that and not notified the parent and he went out and got drunk some other way and hurt himself. Now what kind of position would the school be in? Here they confiscated something illegal from him and didn't notify the parents and then the child was caused harm. Thankfully that didn't happen and this isn't the real case. But, you know, if they really were that concerned about the safety of the kombucha, right, it should have taken place in a different type of time frame. Um, So that's what makes this really weird. Right. Is like, so why then are they the next day going after him and they have this, you know, uniformed police officer present. They're trying to sign him up for Alcoholics Anonymous for kids. They're um, pointing to his previous behavior record. I mean, literally it was shoot first, ask questions later. And it was not the appropriate way to handle this. It was very bullying. I mean, can you imagine being that child? You're you're in seventh grade and you get pulled out of school for bringing what you think is a healthy, what you know is a healthy beverage, you know, that you know has has helped you and your family kind of transform their, their diet and, and their health process. And here you are being demonized and um, attacked by superiors um, for this. It, it's, it's a really traumatic experience. Now, thankfully, they're going to try to, like always, try to make some lemonade out of this. Mm-hmm. And the, the child expressed interest in starting a real foods club at his school, which, wow. I mean, that would be a huge silver lining to, to start helping other people become aware of real foods and their healing benefits instead of this kind of, um, you know, lack of understanding and demonization of them. It's a good point where you brought up about how they didn't notify the parent because anything that the kid's consuming, good or bad, it really all goes back to the parent. I mean, I don't think this kid just learned about kombucha and <laughs> saved up his allowance, allowance money, money and bought it. <laughs> right, exactly. So clearly it's coming from the parent anyways. And so if the school has a problem with it, then they need to be in touch with the parent rather than taking action against the child. Like that just – it's it's out of order. And I think that that was really the, the, the worst part about this situation is how they chose to handle it. And I think that that more than anything else is what needs to be dealt with um, in a real way because – Again, the the what he brought to school was perfectly legal, perfectly in compliance. And I'll say this about the reformulated products is, um, yes, they're in compliance and all that. But uh, this was another thing that Sander brought up is he would make yogurt. He'd go to the store and buy some yogurt and he would make some. But by the second or third batch, he wasn't able to continue the process. And part of that was because um, early on when they were doing research on yogurt, they identified like one or two strains as being, okay, this is what defines yogurt. It has these one or two strains. But if you look in nature and how we made yogurt naturally, it was a huge diversity of strains that were present in terms of the types of bacteria and, and things in it. And that lack of diversity means that when you go to try to replicate it at home, and this is a culture that's been passed down, right, for hundreds or thousands of years, and now you can't replicate it from a commercial product, what that says is whatever they're doing in that process is preventing it from self-perpetuating, which means something's missing, right? And that's the same kind of thing we get with the commercial kombuchas these days is it's not that there aren't health benefits to drinking it, but you're not getting the full diversity. You're not getting the full um, benefits of that kombucha. So when people try to grow a culture from a store-bought kombucha, it used to be years ago you could do this um, and you would grow a healthy culture and you could make your own. But because of these changes that had to be made in order to fit this artificial, you know, it's the law, the uh, the artificial standard of 0.5% and less, 
you're not able to do that. You might be able to grow a culture, but as you make your successive batches of kombucha, they either go to mold or they don't taste good. And that's because something's missing. And th- and that's why it's important you get literally it reproduces, right, Aaron? You've seen it in front mm-hmm. of your eyes. It's going to make more of itself. So getting a quality culture for anything, whether that's kefir or kombucha or whatever you want to ferment at home, starting with a quality culture is going to give you a long-term um, quality beverage or whatever you're making. So you want to start with something that's good. That's a good point you bring up about there's still some advantages of getting the store kombucha that you're at least getting some of the healthy bacteria and the culture. I think that's kind of similar to how if you live in a state where raw milk is illegal, that it's still better to have some form of dairy. What you want to go for then is go for the grass-fed dairy. I would say grass-fed, not organic dairy. Really? Yes. I mean, because the thing about organic dairy is all that means is that the cows were given non-GMO feed, which is good, but I mean, they could be fed organic corn or soy corn, so mm-hmm. it's better to actually go for a grass-fed dairy. I mean, if you can find a grass-fed organic dairy, that's the second best thing to getting the raw milk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and the full fat. Don't forget the fat. That's true, too. Yeah, you should, shouldn't be going for the skim milk. But, oh, my uh, gosh. There's no point. What are you drinking then? <laughs> There's no nutritional value in pasteurized skim milk, <laughs> unfortunately, other than the vitamins that they're re-putting back in there. But, you know, the body – I mean, we need fat to function. And that that's, I think, a really sad um, part of all of this misinformation is – you know, people thinking fat makes them fat and then consuming the wrong kinds of fat. It's really type and quantity, right? Um, when you're consuming the healthy fats, the fats that our bodies have evolved to know how to use, you feel satiated. You eat less, you know. And I think that that's been a real problem is our society pushes quantity, not quality. And so, you know, he who has the most toys wins or whatever that kind of mentality is. It's like it's oh, the most more. And we even see that in our food, like the way the U.S. portion sizes have grown to be so immense um, as our waistlines have as well. And um, and part of that is because you're eating a chemicalized, overprocessed food supply that's devoid of nutritional value. And why do we eat, Aaron? We, we eat because we're hungry. <laughs> We're hungry, but what are we hungry for? We're hungry for nutrition. We're hungry for nutrients. We're hungry to get the enzymes and the vitamins that our bodies can't produce on their own. And we need to do that from the foods we consume. But if we eat because it's fun, we eat because we're supposed to eat three meals a day, we eat because um, you know this ad on TV was really cool and funny – we're not getting our nutrition, and so we end up consuming quantity. It's like if you eat a bag of Cheetos, how much nutrition are you getting from that bag? Not that much. So now a little bit later, you're still hungry again because your body hasn't received what it's looking for. And I think that's why when people start incorporating kombucha and other fermented foods into their diets, it helps with the sugar cravings. It helps them lose weight because their body is now receiving nutrition in a living form, in a form it can actually use, and therefore you don't need the quantity. And so this whole argument that there isn't enough food to feed the world and this is why we need GMO products and what that – why that means we can't have them labeled is baffling to me but um, simply doesn't hold water when you look at if we were actually consuming nutritious food, we would not need to eat so much. Yes, and the GMOs also, although they claim it grows more crops, the results we've seen have been the opposite that actually it's been growing less, especially also because a lot of these – 
farms that use GMOs, I mean, it's all monocultures where the soil's destroyed. Completely destroyed. And there's no nutritional value. I mean, um, you know, that's the really sad thing is that our our planet loves diversity. You go, even here in L.A., you walk outside, just the diversity of flora and fauna that are right outside our door. And we live in a major city. Is, is tremendous. And it all lives together, the insects with the plants, with the, you know, and that's what we're supposed to be is this intermingling, this coming together because um, that's how we support each other's life, right? We, we live off of each other's um, energy or what we're producing, right? We breathe in the oxygen that the plants are, are, um, are creating for us and they're sucking in the carbon dioxide. You know, there's this whole beautiful symbiosis with everything in nature. And when the farther away we get from that, the, um, the less imbalanced we are. And that's really where we're in a state of imbalance. And I think this is why we see so much dysbiosis, so many health problems is, you know, we're out of balance and we're losing our genetic heritage, right? Mm-hmm. Or just, and so it's now is a chance to rebuild. We see how quickly we degenerate. I mean, it literally takes one generation or less, you know, before you start seeing those those very telltale signs um, in terms of the, the narrowing of the palates and not having enough room for the teeth, as Weston Price's research uh, demonstrated. And it's now there is no time like right now to start incorporating fermented foods, raw milk into your diet, bone broth fermented cod liver oil, any of these things, no matter where, where you're at in your, in your health journey, no matter where you are in that process, just adding one of these things to your diet is going to create change in a really positive way. And don't forget adding kombucha to the diet. But Hannah, it's, <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's always a joy to have you on the show. We've got to go to our desserts in a second. But before we go, let the listeners know where they can find kombucha on the interwebs. Absolutely. Um, definitely check out our article uh, about the, the – it's called Kombucha in Students Lunchbox Leads to Threats, Harassment, and Bullying from the Police and the Vice Principal at Kombucha Camp. That's campwithak.com. You can also uh, find quality cultures and starts uh, at our store. So we hope you'll check that out, and thank you so much, Aaron. Absolutely. Great to have you on. So now for our desserts, how to live appropriately up in the upcoming week. For upcoming Prop 37 uh, GMO labeling events, soon the city council in L.A. will be voting on whether they're going to endorse Prop 37, and you have a chance to be there and campaign for it. This is Wednesday, October 24th, starting at 9 a.m. There will be a rally outside City Hall to urge the council members to endorse Yes on 37. Bring all of your posters, flyers, signs, and banners to show your support. Next, there's a movement to get raw almonds back on the market in California. It's a private committee called Action for Almonds, and you can go to their website at actionforalmonds.org to make a donation through PayPal. And finally, for those of you in or near the San Diego area, our good friend Dee McCaffrey, author of The Science of Skinny, will be giving free lectures at Sprouts Supermarkets. She'll be at the Sprouts in Santee on Thursday, October 18th at 7 p.m., and the Sprouts in Carlsbad on Saturday, October 20th at 10 a.m. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. Next week, I continue my Wise Tradition speaker series with Chris Kirsten of Schaff and Family Orchards. To find out more about my news stories, my guests, and the events happening this week, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.blogspot.com. Mm-hmm.